Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So this was back in 2003. Um, that is when I had what I call the, the, the worst ex loss in my entire life. Um, my mom died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. She was 54 years old. And it completely changed my entire life. Uh, I was very close to my mom and, you know, sharing earlier with you just the sacrifices that she made with my father to really give my sister and I a different life. And a loser so suddenly um, was devastating. And through that experience, I really found myself not knowing what I wanted to do with my life anymore. And however, because I was so conditioned to really pursue and continue to meet expectations and do my best and perform and outperform. I continued to do the therapy part for a while, but I found that mental health consultation was a better avenue for me because it did it just gave me a relief from having 24-7 responsibility for clients. And while I was mourning, mourning the loss of my mother and kind of figuring out, you know, how do I build my life back up? I was 28 at the time. I'm a young woman that didn't have a mom anymore. And what did that mean in terms of how I start to move forward? And I found that consultation for me was a beautiful way to slow down and to really start to give my own self permission to wonder about life and wonder with my clients about child's behaviors in the classroom and wonder what what we can do as adults to really start to be present with the experiences in front of us and use those experiences to really reflect on who we are as individuals. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Gladys, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here with you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you are part of a steady stream of amazing people that Selena uh, Sue has sent us. Uh, so uh, I would like to start by asking you, uh, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact uh, has that ended up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Oh, huge. Well, my dad is from Peru and my mom was from Mexico and they were the first in their families to come to the United States. So they were going after that the American dream. And uh, there's an interesting story there. You know, my dad uh, came from a big family. He had their six siblings in his uh, family and my mom had nine siblings. So for them, they really were able to break away from the the norms that had been established in their own countries in terms of expectations for what they could accomplish in their own lives. And my mom in particular, there was a story that my aunts told me once how they remember her getting so angry one day. They were all little kids and they grew up in the middle of um, 
central Mexico and Michoacan, the state of Michoacan and very, very poor family. And one day the father brought some bread home and it was the first time that they were able to actually enjoy something more because they were so poor. They only could eat what they were able to grow. They didn't have shoes and he brought home some extra bread and all the kids swarmed over it and ravenously trying to get a piece of the bread. And my mom was so angry to see that kind of behavior that she said, I am never going to let this happen ever again. And she made a decision that at that point in time, she was going to start working to provide for the family. And she started working when she was six years old. So she did everything from manual labor. Uh, when she did come here to the United States, she was a migrant worker for a period period of time. She was a nanny. She ended up uh, working for one of the largest uh, chicken processing plants in the country, Foster Farms. And she was there for almost 20 years. And during that time, uh, she, it's when she met my father. So my father coming from Peru, he had uh, gone through high school and then, um, you know, entering his early 20s, just ended up on what he would call a pretty dangerous path of partying and really not staying focused. Uh, in his, in his own educational pursuits. And so he was encouraged to come to the United States to start a new life. So they met, uh, he was a supervisor, a floor supervisor at Foster Farms. They met and through that union, they ended up having two daughters, myself and my sister, Jackie. And the one gift that was so important for my parents to give to my sister and I was the gift of education. So education has been a non-negotiable in my family. It was expected that I would go to school and perform well. It was expected that I would go to college because for my father, that was that was his way of breaking the pattern of poverty, of breaking the pattern of lack of educational opportunities, and then doors opening to us for a future that really could be different than what they had. So their experience for me really shaped who I was today because I, I knew the suffering that they came from. And I also knew that as a Latina woman, I was here, you know, first born in the United States, first to go to college, first to become a doctor. I am here as a role model. And it's become very important for me to really honor my parents' legacies to uphold what they really saw as the one hope uh, for their family. And that was to really give us the opportunity to be educated, but then also really pursue professional opportunities that they never had the opportunity to. Mm, wow. Okay. So many questions. Um, one, you know, you mentioned this idea of breaking patterns and, and I'm curious, you know, uh, having had the experience that you have, how do you, how do you see people who like, what are the things that people who break patterns have in common and how do they do it? Uh, two, you know, having mm. been brought up in an immigrant culture, you know, with a lot of these cultural expectations, I mean, as you can imagine, I have many very similar ones, um, and probably many that haven't been met. In mm -hmm. fact, I am um, <laughs> quite curious, like how you sort of resolve the tension of the expectations of a, a culture that you grew up in with, you know, your own Ooh. desires for what you want your life to look like. Oh yeah. Well, breaking patterns, gosh, you know, when I think about my father and how he broke the pattern, it was pure determination to provide something different that came out of love. And it's, I just, I believe so much, you know, love is something that can be a very fluffy word and it makes people think of rainbows and unicorns, or it can be something that people really understand is the antidote to everything in terms of suffering that we experience as humans. And 
he actually shared it's so funny because I recently I went to lunch with him and my sister and he was sharing how as a father he didn't know what to do you know he didn't know how to express love he didn't know how to be with these two daughters that he now had in a different country and with his wife who was Mexican and Peruvians and Mexicans have their own little thing about you know who's better in terms of countries uh-huh. <laughs> so um it just it became really for him this desire to say, I, I have these two, these, these are my offspring. These are my life and I want the best for them. And so I am going to break the pattern in terms of expectations where, you know, being the first in my family to get an education, a college education, what his way of doing it was, okay, I'm going to raise my daughters in an environment that is as acculturated as possible. Um, so that he was really focused on having us assimilate into the American culture. And this is something that a lot of families go through. So the, the expectation in some ways when you come to the United States is that, you know, you're here in a different country, so you need to take on that country's values and their norms and their ways of being. And as an immigrant, you you start to unconsciously, I feel like, uh, develop a message that one culture is better than the other. And so for my father, he felt that the American culture was the best, right? This is where it's a land of opportunity. The American dream happens here. You could open doors of possibility that he would never have in Peru, that my mom would never have in Mexico. And he wanted to set us up for success. So he chose to send us to private school. He chose to live in an area um, in our town of Turlock where it was majority, you know, were the American white people. Um, we were two blocks away from the university that in the area, uh, Cal State Stanford. And in doing that, he felt that he was now able to have us really immerse ourselves in the environment that we were going to be living in. And the more that we could assimilate to that, the more successful we could be. Now, fast forward several years, now I'm in college, I'm in graduate school, I went to Baylor University, I'm in, <laughs> I, went, I went from UC San Diego, which is in La Jolla, um, for those of you that are not familiar with La Jolla, La Jolla is very gorgeous, it's beautiful by the beach, um, the lifestyle there is pretty uh, amazing, and coming from Turlock, where it was a very agriculturally heavy environment, culture, in terms, you know, culture diversity was, it was very segregated. I went to UCSD and had this amazing experience there and then went to Waco, Texas. And I mean, literally Saturday, Bill Clinton is speaking at my commencement ceremony. And the next day I'm, I'm driving through these states where there's just nothingness. And I end up in Waco to find the similar level of segregation in, in that community. So breaking the norm for me really was about how do I stand in my own two feet as a woman who I understand myself to be as a woman and start to really develop my own sense of identity separate from the expectations that were imposed on me separate from what I believed that people expected from me and externally but I'll tell you it's it, I feel like that's a lifelong journey because the flip side of it is that all those expectations really motivated me to perform well. I, I'm definitely somebody that has that people-pleasing element in my DNA. So I wanted people to love me. I wanted people to accept me. And there's a whole story around that, you know, from my childhood um, where that came from. But in this context, it really motivated me to do my best to figure out the systems that I was in, what their expectations were, what the norms were, and assimilate as best as possible to then 
outperform in terms of expectations. And that's been why I've, I've been so blessed to have so many amazing career opportunities. It's, it's truly because of that. Mm. So walk me through the journey from graduate school to the work that you've ended up doing today. Wow. Well, I went to graduate school to become a clinical psychologist. So my fantasy was that I would be working with adults and I would have a private practice set up somewhere. I thought it was going to be San Diego because I was so in love with the just lifestyle by the beach. And I went to my internship, which was in Albany, New York. So this is after I finished my studies. And I ended up doing a year internship there where my main focus was working with veterans of war. So the entire year, I had clients that were Vietnam vets, uh, all had post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, These were combat veterans. So these were snipers. Um, These were men that have killed in war, that saw their comrades killed. Um, The trauma level was so high. And And I was now their therapist. And I was like, I don't remember, I think it was like a 22 year old or 21. I mean, I was so young. And with these men that experienced the horrors of life, and I developed such a deep compassion in my heart for them. And so at that point in time, I really was thinking strongly about working for the VA system. And My graduate training, however, had been primarily focused on children and families. So my first therapy client was a little four-year-old preschooler. And I remember when, you know, when you work with children that young, you're not having intellectual conversations, you're playing, right? And you're understanding how they're communicating through their play. And I remember setting up all the toys in the playroom. And I was so proud of myself. You know, I had the dolls in one little corner. I had the toy trucks. I had the Legos. And this little boy walked in and he looked at me. He looked at all the toys and he went ballistic. He just started destroying all the toys. And he started opening up all the cabinets and the closets. And I'm staring at him and I'm being videotaped, right? Because we have to videotape every one of our sessions for our supervisors to watch. And I don't even know what to do. And then he bolts out the door into the street. So I... I had this crisis moment with this little boy, my first therapy client. And then, you know, fast forward to my internship, I'm working with crisis situations where I'm dealing with people who are broken. And then fast forward to my postdoc, I came here to San Francisco. And my postdoc uh, was with UC San Francisco. It was at San Francisco General Hospital, which is the, the main trauma hospital here in the Bay Area. And so crisis became this part of my career that I was constantly managing or I was dealing with the after effects of. And it wasn't an intentional choice. It's just what started to happen. And after a while, I, especially after my postdoc, I, I felt like it was too much. I felt like I was too much of an emotional sponge. I wasn't cut out to do therapy. I was too sensitive. So I figured, why don't I try my hand at pharmaceutical sales and make a bunch of money? And after seven months, I learned that that was a really terrible plan because (laughs) I'm not good at making people do what they want before they're ready, right? I was trained as a therapist. You really work at the client speed. And so when I was having to meet monthly quotas, uh, I just, I totally couldn't do it. So anyway, I was let go. I was not a good performer, salesperson. And right around that time, I decided I'm going to go back and just get my hours so that I can get my license as a clinical psychologist. And that way I could have a private practice if I wanted. To, I was just leaving the doors open. So, this was back in 2003. Um, that is when I had what I call the, the, the worst loss in my entire life. Um, my mom died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. She was 54 years old. 
and it completely changed my entire life. Uh, I was very close to my mom and, you know, sharing earlier with you just the sacrifices that she made with my father to really give my sister and I a different life. And a loser so suddenly um, was devastating. And through that experience, I really found myself not knowing what I wanted to do with my life anymore. And however, because I was so conditioned to really pursue and continue to meet expectations and do my best and perform and outperform. I continued to do the therapy part for a while, but I found that mental health consultation was a better avenue for me because it did it just gave me a relief from having 24/7 responsibility for clients. And while I was mourning mourning the loss of my mother and kind of figuring out, you know, how do I build my life back up? I was 28 at the time. I'm a young woman that didn't have a mom anymore. And what did that mean in terms of how I start to move forward? And I found that consultation for me was a beautiful way to slow down and to really start to give my own self permission to wonder about life and wonder with my clients about child's behaviors in the classroom and wonder what what we can do as adults to really start to be present with the experiences in front of us and use those experiences to really reflect on who we are as individuals. So the consultation, it's interesting because, you know, it, it was such a long time ago. I did that for nine years and I carry that experience with me so close to my heart because it was probably one of the most satisfying careers that I've had but it was the least stressful. <laughs> and it's interesting because after that, I ended up on a crazy, um, almost 15 year journey in higher education. And that started because I wanted to keep my feet wet in public speaking. So public speaking is my biggest passion. Um, I have 34 years of experience. I started with when I was eight years old. And again, that's, you know, childhood story that really kind of shaped who I am today. Uh, so I decided to apply to a local university here in the Bay Area and start teaching. And I figured I would teach while I was doing the mental health consultation. And that just was the start of a new chapter where uh, people saw that I was really organized and I was very strategic and able to see clarity and chaos very quickly. So they uh, they gave me amazing opportunities to start to walk the path of leadership. So shortly after becoming a professor, I became the chair of the undergraduate studies program. And after that, the program grew from psychology and business to then liberal arts. And it grew, we had, I think, four programs by the time I was done serving as a chair. I then became the vice president of academic affairs for that university. And so at that point in time, the stress was at an all-time high. Uh, I, I was no longer able to consult. So for a while, I was actually doing both full-time jobs, which was crazy. But I learned that from my parents. My mom had three jobs for 17 years of her life. So by the time I became a vice president, I, I remember feeling that that curiosity, that ability to be present and to really slowly look at what's unfolding in our life started to disappear. And it got filled with needing to respond um, to crisis in, in the moment. And they come from left and right. You know, you're dealing with student complaints, you're dealing with professors' uh, issues, you're dealing with the whole university community going through changes. This was back when online education was starting to become uh, more at the forefront. And I had to help shepherd the university community from fully face-to-face -face courses to 100% online classes. So going through these cultural crises uh, was a huge part of what I was managing. And I got burned out in 2010. So at <laughs> that point in time, I remember I went to my office one day. 
I sat down and my whole routine as I would get to the office, I'd sit down, I'd open my computer and I'd see, you know, the hundreds of emails and I would just start plowing away before my first meeting and trying to respond to as many of them. And instead I got online and I Googled what are the symptoms of burnout and I read through them really quickly and before my first meeting, I walked out of my office and I said, oh my God, I'm burned out. And what am I going to do about it? Well, if you've been burned out, you don't have the energy to figure out what you're going to do about it. And that's one of the, the hardest things to recognize. It's you're stuck. It's very hard to get unstuck. But I, I, you know, I kept doing what I was doing and I actually stayed there for, I think, two more years burned out completely, um, but still performing at the highest level and managing lots of crises. And I received an email one day from a colleague saying, there's a job opportunity, um, pass it on to anybody, you know, that might be interested. And I looked it up just out of curiosity, not thinking anything of it. And it said they were looking for a provost. There was a search for a provost for a Latino based university in the Bay area. And my first thought was, thought was where, and why haven't I heard of it? I'm Latina, right? And there's actually a university dedicated to Latinos. That's incredible. So I, I wanted to know, know more. And that began a 17 interview process um, for which I then ended um, accepting the role as provost of the National Hispanic University. This was a little university in San Jose, California um, that had been around for, at that point, about 32 years. And it was started by Dr. Roberto Cruz. Um, he was a UC Berkeley graduate. He was a football player. Um, but, you know, if you think back 34 years ago, that was during a time when the Latinos, and, and I think they still are, Latinos were very, very much marginalized and education was, was a dream. It was, you know, if you could get an education, that was the best thing for your family, similar to what my parents felt. Um, but a lot of Latinos didn't have access to the colleges here in California, either because they didn't have the grades or they didn't have the money. And so Dr. Cruz's response to that was to create NHU. So I started there at NHU in 2013. And uh, five months after being there, I stepped into the role as president of the university. And very shortly after that, um, I learned that the board was considering closing the school down, that they had serious, serious financial issues that had been going on for many, many, many uh, years. It wasn't a new thing. And they were at the point where it was just, you know, we, we got to really look at this very deeply and see what our best move is going to be. And ultimately, the decision was made to close the school. So, you know, I, I left a, a job where I was burned out thinking that I was going to start to rebuild. And instead, I ended up in a situation where I was now again managing a big crisis. And this crisis was one that I had no idea how to manage. Um, none of us knew because you you don't go to school to learn how to close down a university. Um, but the one thing that I knew how to do was have a good goodbye. And that was an experience that I had when my mother died. Um, when she passed away at her funeral, I had a very um, deep spiritual experience where I was infused with her spirit. And in the moment of my deepest pain, I felt the greatest joy that I've ever felt in this earth. I felt the purest love. I felt the deepest level of, of celebration. And in that moment, I knew that my mom was meant to go. I knew that she was happy. I knew that I would never have her here again on this earth. And I was able to accept all of it. So that experience for me shaped me in a way that I, I had no idea what it would until fast forward 2013 
here I am facing a community of hundreds of individuals and I have no idea what the hell I'm going to do, but I know how to have a good goodbye. So this personal philosophy of mine became a strategic initiative to guide the university community to a closure. And we closed the school in 2015. And I was, I mean, obviously, everybody had to be laid off. I was the last person to be laid off. And at that point, I I knew that I was done with that path, that career path. It was clear to me that my my heart needed to be refueled. Um, my energy needed to be filled back up, and I needed to heal just from a very, very long career. You know, just a stressful career. And so, at that point in time, I found myself saying no to these beautiful uh, career opportunities that just would have led me further up the ladder. And I decided to say yes to a personal dream that I had had that I was too embarrassed to tell anybody about. I, I told my sister. I think she was the only one that I told for years. And. I mean, I'll tell you now, it's, it's very silly to say, but it's like I, you know, had these fantasies that I really wanted to develop a, a public platform like Oprah did. I wanted to be the Latina Oprah. And I didn't tell anybody because it was so freaking embarrassing. Like everybody wants to be Oprah, right? Like who am I to think that I could? And it's not that I want to do what she did, but I really want to be able to create a big platform of awareness that I use for good. And there's a lot of skepticism, you know, people either love Oprah or they hate her. And for me, I think what she was brilliant at was being able to bring the celebrity down to this level of humanity and be able to then use her power to help raise awareness for people. And and the things that she's done ever since, you know, with Deepak Chopra and, you know, the Super Soul Sundays, I just feel like she is helping people believe in something that they don't have access to. And that's very much an inspiration for me and what I'm trying to build now. So last year, I started a business called Bridging Consciousness. And my big vision for Bridging Consciousness is that it will be uh, the alternative to Hay House Publishing. Hay House has had an enormous, enormous, uh, strong reputation for several years. Louise Hay actually started it um, as a way to publish her first book. And it grew into this huge, 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 amazing platform that features the, the leaders, right? The leaders today, global leaders in spirituality and wellness, personal growth. And when I was creating my vision for bridging consciousness, I remember one day looking at everything that I had on my spreadsheet and, you know, I'm super organized and strategic. So I had my whole vision laid out and I stopped. I'm like, wait a minute, what does Hay House do? And I looked online and I looked at their business model. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm creating an alternative to Hay House. The only difference is that I want to feature emerging leaders. I want to bring light to the people that are superstars in this world that nobody knows about yet. And I want to be that person that my role models and my mentors were for me to give me a chance when, you know, technically I was too young, where I might not have had enough experience, but they saw my potential and they lifted me up. And that's exactly what I want to do with Bridging Consciousness. Mm. So that's a big, big vision. Um, But in the meantime, because, you know, that's not happening tomorrow, uh, (laughs) what I am focusing on is really building um, a new a new chapter for myself. Uh, I'm not the president of a university anymore. I am Dr. Gladys Otto. I'm now an author of my first book, The Good Goodbye, which uh, teaches people how to navigate change and loss in life, love, and work. And it is truly a compilation of my entire life, just dealing with crises, dealing with change, but knowing how to find the good in it and use it to really be able to transform our lives and move into any new chapter 
more powerful for for all of our experiences. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mm, wow. Okay, so many questions. Uh you know, one of the things that has always interested me is the sort of narrative that we have as a culture around mental health. I mean, you having been in the role of therapy and, and you know, um, counseling people, uh, why do you think that we've had such a stigma around it? Um, how do we change it? What are the misperceptions of it? And, you know, uh, I don't know how it is in the Latina culture, but like in, in, in the Indian culture, like, you know, we avoid therapy or the talk of it at all costs. Oh, yeah. We will not, you know, therapy is for crazy people. Right. <laughs> And the people that are therapists are crazy. I don't yeah. know if you've heard that one too, right? <laughs> um, gosh, you know, it's... 
the first thing that came to mind when you asked that was that mental health has had roots in looking at dysfunction, right? It looks at what's wrong. And who wants to look at themselves and say, I've got something wrong with me, right? So I think professionally, the, the emphasis of you know, mania, or I mean, I think about Freud, and you know, some of the ways in the studies that he did, it was focused on the craziness and and pointing out the ways in which people suffer and what the extremes of suffering can look like, and then digging into the psyche, right? That they, that there are motivators of our behavior that we might not even be conscious of. That's freaking scary if you think about it, right? Like I'm doing things and I'm not even aware of it. I don't want that. So, I think part of what makes mental health so hard for people to embrace is is partly because of the history where it has been focused on deficit. And we just as humans are not naturally attracted to looking at what we don't have right or, you know, that what's broken about us, uh, which is changing. The beautiful thing is, you know, with the introduction of positive psychology and humanistic psychology and a personal psychology, it's very much strengths based. So I, I do see that there's a shift even in, you know, people's mentality about it. And, and granted, you know, I live in the bubble of San Francisco. Like, you know, if you have a therapist here, that's a great thing. Like, how do you not have a therapist, right? New York is the same. Like, who's your therapist? My therapist. It's like the cool thing to have, right? Yeah. It's to, you know, energy workers and healers and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like for the rest of of folks and just like you, you know, with your background in the Latino culture, um, you get into like, you know, spirits and demons, right? That's, that's, you know, (laughs) when you talk about mental health, you're talking about like, uh, Santeria and all that kind of stuff. It's like, that's black magic shit that we don't want to go to. Right. So it's just gotten very convoluted. And the one thing that I, that I do to simplify it, um, and this is a result of all the therapy that I've been through, you know, after my mom died, I, I immediately found a therapist. I knew that was the best thing for me is therapy, counseling, you know, any kind of work that you're doing around looking at yourself and increasing self-awareness and really investing in your personal growth. Think about it as this is your emotional massage. And just like we, you know, when we think about massages, like, oh, that sounds so amazing. Some of us are like, don't freaking touch me, you know, but for the most part, massage is seen as a luxury. It's seen as something that we give ourselves as a treat. The same thing it's within with any kind of mental health support. Uh, it is it is a treat for you to be able to immerse yourself in an environment that is supportive, that is unconditional, that does not bring judgment into the room. How often do we get to experience that, right? So to be able to step into that space with someone that professionally is there to really see you for who you are and guide you to your best potential that's a luxury. And it's a luxury that we all have access to nowadays more so than ever. Um, But if we can start to change our story around it, our collective story, I think people will be more permissive to actually start talking about it. And I do think that's one of the biggest things that we need to remember is the stories that we carry about mental health or about anything in life uh, play a big role in whether or not we'll give ourselves permission to experience things differently. Wow. So there's no way we're going to get out of this conversation without me asking you about education, as you might imagine, um, if you've heard some of my own views on it. So I'm curious, having been in the position of, of, you know, being a president of a university, um, how do you look at education today, you know, especially given that it seems incredibly outdated, um, it's (laughs) burying people in mountains of debt, not leading to its intended outcomes, if the intended outcome is is for them to actually thrive, um, having been in the position that you're in, like what, what are your views on it today? Does it really make sense for everybody to go to college? No, 
No. And I, I, I'm a big believer that the institution of education is crumbling. And I'm excited for that. Uh, you know, I, I, it's not just with education, but I think any institution that we've had um, that has deep, deep roots in shaping our country, uh, our culture here, uh, we're seeing the shift right now very clearly. And it's, you know, these paradigms are starting to crumble. They're feeling the heat of not being stable anymore. And there's a reason for that. It's they don't work anymore. The systems are not supporting our highest good or our evolution to the next level. And that is not a, a, a pointing the finger or blaming, but rather just recognizing that everything evolves. Everything evolves, including institutions like education. So I, I feel very strongly, and I saw this most when, you know, I was put in the position where, you know, I became the vice president. And then during that time, we were moving from face-to-face education to online education. I was the biggest anti-supporter of online education at that time. And I thought that, you know, as a psychologist, there's no way that this is going to benefit students and online ed. It's not possible. You can't connect. You need to feel the energy in room. You need to have eye contact. And ironically, you know, through me like fighting it so much, I didn't want that to happen to our campus. I ended up um, bringing this message to our community. And I had to do a lot of my own research to figure out, okay, well, what are the benefits? Why is this showing up right now in education? And for me, the one beauty that I see about where we've headed with education is that, you know, we have to evolve with, with everything that's evolving around us. And so technology has become a big part of it. And people, more people today have access to education than ever before. There's something beautiful about that. However, I think that expectation that everyone should go to college and everybody should, you know, incur that debt. I, I'm still paying my student loan off. I'll probably, I don't know for how many more years I'll, I'll have that, but it, I, I think that that does a disservice to the individual because it's a blanket, a blanket solution rather than looking at the reality that the education system has lost its touch with the uniqueness of each individual and really investing in educating people for with the skills that are actually going to help them survive as humans. We have taught to the test. And we have taught in a way that has given students great insights and great knowledge, but in terms of applicability, that there was a lot of question around that. And that's where gainful employment came from, right? So we really, you know, gainful employment was an attempt to try to say, okay, universities, we're going to hold you accountable to making sure that you're not only graduating students, but they get jobs. But I feel like the the economy playing a big role in that, um, students coming out of school with thousands of dollars of debt and no job and no way to pay it. It's a broken system. So it, that's why I said earlier, you know, I am excited that I feel like the institution is starting to crumble because in that disintegration, something new will emerge that will better serve our, our future generations. Mm, wow. All right. So I want to spend the rest of our, our time talking about this notion of a good goodbye and, and navigating various losses, because I think, you know, losing a parent, losing a significant other, you know, having a relationship end in some way, uh, having a friendship. end. I mean, all of these things, I think, are, are inevitable parts of our lives. I, I, unless you're not engaging with the world, I don't think you're going to you know, ever not experience these things. Right. Um, so what what does your work showed about how we deal with these situations and come out of the other side? Yeah. Well, one thing that I've felt really strongly about was helping redefine what goodbyes mean. 
uh, if we think about goodbyes, like if I were to ask, well, I'm actually really curious if you don't mind, like if what, what are the three emotions that you would say the top three emotions come up for you when you hear the word goodbyes? Mm, wow. Um, it depends on what the goodbye is like, uh, in some cases pain, mm-hmm. uh, um, in others, uh, sort of fond memories or or sentimentality, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, in, in others, I guess, loneliness, you know, because you've lost somebody who, you know, meant something to you. Yeah. So pain, uh, sentimentality and loneliness. Yeah. I guess two out of three aren't very good, I guess. Well, well, that's, that's the thing though. It's, uh, this is awesome. And thank you for that because we assume that they're not good. We assume pain is not good. We assume loneliness isn't good. And it's like, well, how could it be good? It doesn't feel right, right? We don't want to sit in that space. But I think that's what I'm trying to accomplish with the good goodbye is redefining what goodbyes mean and recognizing that you can hold the paradox of grief and celebration at the same time. So that in loss, there, yes, it's, it's painful. I, I in no way am a subscriber to the belief that, you know, I'm, I'm here to get rid of grief. I don't believe in that. I believe that grief actually is a beautiful place to discover our deepest level of resilience. It's in grief that we actually bond together. You know, right now here in Northern California, we've been dealing with um, all the fires that are happening in around the Bay Area and the grief of losing your home, the grief of losing your community, the grief of losing pets and loved ones, your whatever it is, has also bonded people together. It's brought them together in a way that wouldn't have been possible without this devastation. So I'm trying to help people really rethink what goodbyes mean and create a different story about it so that when the word comes up, you know, what's beautiful about what you said, it was pain, but it was also sentimentality. Like there was a, there was an excitement about it. Like, oh yeah, that nostalgia and that feels good, right? That we can hold both of them at the same time. And how we navigate that process can be simplified down to a place where we start to be more present with our experience. So in the Good Goodbye book, I present a five pillar approach where I move people through five different actions. These are not steps. So very contrary to Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's stages of grieving, you know, everybody took that and they said, okay, when you grieve something, when you lose something, first of all, it's denial, then it's anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I have to move through these stages and then I will be fine. I will be relieved. I will be normal. I'll be happy. What's so sad about that is that was never her intention, right? It was that she was looking at terminally ill patients and describing their experience, but it got translated into this because people were needing something to hold on to to make sense of their journey that was nonsensical at that time. And I'm doing the same thing. However, what I have introduced in my book is a paradoxical approach to her model. So we all believe that if you're grieving you, the last stage that you want to get to the finish line is acceptance. And what I've done is that I flipped that. So what I'm presenting to people is if you're going to look at my book as a stages kind of book, which I do not say it is the one thing that I would want you to start with is acceptance. I, I, because when you start with acceptance, you actually release yourself energetically from holding on to any ties to the, what's already changed that you cannot do anything to make different that keeps you stuck in the past. And when you get to that point of acceptance, and by the way, acceptance doesn't mean I'm complete. I'm, I, it's all makes sense to me. I am not grieving anymore. Acceptance simply means 
recognition of what's in front of you as it is. That's it. And then from there, how do you use your energy to then understand your experience? How is it affecting you? It's painful. It hurts. I'm terrified. I'm angry. That's, that's understanding. How do you want to get through this? Well, I want to feel good, right? That's a simplified way of saying it. Everybody wants to feel good at the end of the day. So let that be your milestone. And then how do you get from pain or anger, or sadness to gratitude or joy or celebration? That's the journey of the good goodbye. And that's where I introduce the concept of gratitude and forgiveness and presence and compassion so that ultimately you can get to a point of saying goodbye with grace. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's so it's almost surreal to hear you say that because I was literally writing my you know, morning journal of a thousand words a day. Like I was writing about acceptance this morning and how, you know, acceptance is, is this very strange sort of feeling because you what we the opposite of it is resistance to whatever it is. But, you know, the thing yeah. is that we're trying to change something that we can't even change and you get stuck in the past. So I want to ask you two things about acceptance. Like, you know, I think that many of us understand the notion of acceptance intellectually. And so we can say, okay, yeah, I accept this, but it's hard not to ruminate on the thing that you want to see change, even though the rumination is, is pretty much fruitless. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It's, it, tell me a little bit more. Okay. So you have a situation that in your life that you want to change. It's done and over with. You can't change it. Right. Right. But right. what you do is you replay it in your head. Um, this is just based on something that I've been dealing with personally. Um, and you keep thinking back to, okay, if I change this one thing, would the outcome have changed? Which you realize at a certain point, you're like, okay, this is pretty fruitless because one of a million things could have led to the outcome. And I have no mm. idea what any of those are. So mm-hmm. maybe the real solution is to stop asking the damn question. <laughs> and save yourself some sanity. I totally yeah. get it. Yep. Um, God, but don't we all do that? I mean, you know, it's, it's, we love to torture ourselves. I, I, you know, I do think that's just part of the human condition, but the value in that, right? I mean, what you're doing when you're going back and you're ruminating and you're thinking, okay, well, if I had done this, could this outcome have been different? That's Mm self-reflection and that's healthy, right? Where it comes, where it becomes unhealthy is where it starts to get in the way and of you being able to move forward, yeah. right? So if you're ruminating to the point where you, your mind is full with that uh, repetitive tape of, you know, just going over and over and over sure. and over again, or what I tell myself actually last week, it's so funny. I, I had this moment with my own self because I'm a total ruminator and I hate ambiguity. So if things aren't clear and resolved, or it, I just, I stew in it and I don't like it. Right. And I tend to be somebody that takes a lot of responsibility. So when things don't go the way I wanted, sure. I assume that I did something wrong. Yeah. Right. It was my fault. I'm well, that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's a place actually where there's huge opportunity for compassion because really, and what I told myself last week was anytime Gladys, that you start to have a conversation with somebody about what happened in your mind, Right. So when I start introducing a dialogue in my mind, like, if you know, somebody's pissed me off last week and and I'm like, well, they shouldn't have done that. And then and then I'm listening to myself, like saying, well, I would tell if I saw them again, I'm going to tell them this and I'm going to tell them that. And then they're going to respond like this. And then I'm going to say that that's a dialogue that I've created in my mind. At that point, it's a red flag for me. All right, honey, you're done. Right. You're at the point of thinking about this too much. You're investing too much energy in trying to control something that isn't even happening. And you're now not living in the present. Mm. So at that point, what I do is what's hurting. 
what's hurting inside of me right now. And I attribute this to a healer of mine, Amit West. Um, I saw her for six years where she really helped me understand that there are parts of ourselves that we cast off over life or that we shut down because we didn't feel they were acceptable. And maybe we even forgot about or we were told they couldn't be part of who we are today. And any time that you're ruminating or any time you feel unresolved about something, um, you feel out of control, there's a fear, right? If you get cut though through all the layers and, you know, save yourself 10 years of therapy, it, it's go down to that bottom layer, it's fear. And usually that fear is connected to a sense of the fear of not being loved, mm. not being accepted. And so those moments for me, just through, you know, years of practice, 15 years of my own personal development work, I can get to the point where I'm quicker to be able to say, okay, honey, something in you is hurting right now. What, what doesn't feel lovable right now? And then I spend a little bit of time really sitting with that part of Gladys, whether she's two years old, six years old, 21 or 42 now, you know, and really giving myself permission to feel that self-compassion first. And then what naturally comes next is compassion for the other person or the situation, a releasing of needing to control and really allowing, you know, divine grace to intervene and let things unfold as they're intended. Mm, wow. So I have two final questions for you. I mean, it, it you know, you've had, uh, it seems like quite a prolific career with multiple, you know, you have sort of the multi-hyphenate career. And I'm curious with all the various, um, paths that you've been down, uh, how has your definition of success changed with age and time? Gosh, wow. Uh, I don't know if it has changed much, and, and this is why. Success for me is not just about money, but success, but you know, financial success, financial freedom is very important to me. And I have I have felt that way since I was young, right? That money energy for me is is a dynamic that I work well with. I I, I almost find it, I don't want to say playful because I don't want to be disrespectful and have people misinterpret that, but it is energy. Money is energy. And how we relate to that energy really is um, a big producer of then what we experience in terms of the tangible you know dollars in our hands. Um, but success for me has really been fulfilling my purpose. And, and I knew when I was in high school that I was here for something big. I didn't know what it was. I knew I was different. I knew that I had the capacity of a healer. And so naturally, you know, I became a therapist thinking that was a natural path. But if I look at my career now, what I've been led to has been really showing up to help shepherd communities through large-scale crises. And success back in my 20s compared to success in my 40s, it has continually been to do my best in service. Um, but I, I'm a Capricorn, right? So Capricorns are constantly moving up that mountain, right? They're, they're very focused on getting to the top. So that is a big part of who, my energy too. And uh, I love challenge. So success for me has also been really, you know, how do I meet the challenge in front of me? How do I do the impossible? And how do I keep moving up? I actually enjoy that. And the biggest reason is because I keep discovering more about who I am and my potential. And we are truly, as human beings, we are limitless. The, the limits that we experience in life are self-imposed. Um, some of them might be karmic. Some of them might be, you know, family limitations. But we are 
genuinely limitless. And I just, I thrive on being able to experience my biggest power and then be a service to humanity to really remind people that they are no different than me and help them tap back into the power that they have to reach their fullest potential. Wow. So I have uh, one last question for you, which I know you've heard me ask. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, it's really having your own signature that you make no apologies for. It's to me, the words come, that come up for that are it's your essence, it's your spirit, it's your aura, your energy. You know, it's a thing that if you have two you know, identical twins and they look the, exactly the same, you have no, diff, no idea who's who, you actually end up knowing by that that energy, right? It's that, that unique sense of who their spirit and it might show up in that twinkle in their eyes or it might be that little quirk in their head that they have when they laugh. Uh, it's, you know, the, it's who they are at the core that can only be experienced when they are in their most authentic state. And my mom for me is, you know, when I think about unmistakable with her, it, it's her laugh you know, that my mom had this huge laugh that just filled the room to the point where when I was a teenager, I was embarrassed. I'm like, mommy, quiet down. That's really obnoxious and loud, but it was wholly felt with all of her being. And you knew without a shadow of a doubt, you could be a mile down the road. You heard that laugh. You knew it was my mom. There was no doubting it whatsoever. And so that to me, I just, it's, yeah, it's your essence. It's, nobody can take that away from you. And when you stand in that pure, pure state of authentic essence of who you are, that you are unmistakable. Hmm. Amazing. Well, uh, as I, as I expected, this has been profound and beautiful. Where can people learn more about you and your work? So people can go to my website. It's drgladysauto.com. And uh, also for today, people can um, actually go on Amazon and look at my new book. Um, it is available there. It's The Good Goodbye, How to Navigate Change and Loss in Life, Love and Work. Or just type in Gladys Auto, A-T-O. It's a lot simpler that way. And um, also for folks, you know, that maybe aren't ready to dive into the book, I uh, do have on my website a free 30-page workbook full of exercises that are science and psychology-based strategies to really be able to let go of something or someone that is no longer serving your best good. And this workbook I'm giving away for free because I really want people to just immerse themselves in getting some tools that are tools that I've gathered through not only my professional career, but just my personal journey and personal development and giving people a, a flavor of what a good goodbye can look like. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.